This is The Think Tank with Dr. Michael Neal, talking about the major political, economic, and social issues of the week. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. Should you believe in polls? I'm going to do a little something different this week, and I'm going to try to answer that question for you. I've been doing this show for just under 10 years. Before that, I was the guy being interviewed. So this show exercises a different set of muscles for me. It's been a real labor of love and something really different. But I'll never be a radio guy in the sense that I see people around here who can fill the airwaves with their perfect voices, never stumble over a word and do it all effortlessly. That's not me. If I was here for that, I probably would have been fired after the first week. I'm here because I know something. On matters of public policy, a lifelong interest of mine, I have the luxury of being able to read several hours a day. You learn something from that. I try to share some of that of what I know by bringing in guests who often know even more. But there's another area that is a matter of real expertise on my part. It's what practitioners call survey research. Most people call it polling. By the way, the word polling makes most of us who are seriously trained in survey research cringe, but that's another story and we're stuck with it. My background starts with a firm foundation in statistics and social research. Fundamentals in that area as an undergraduate, a Ph.D. in quantitative social science and graduate work and postdoctoral work at the leading academic survey research centers in the world. All this followed by over 40 years of experience as a professional pollster. You learn something from all of that. And this week, I'm going to do something a bit different and share some of this expertise to answer a very important question about the upcoming election. So what's the relevance? All the time there is a discussion. Can we trust the polls, particularly after the last two elections, and should we believe them? These are very fair questions. By the way, most people think that professional pollsters will be the first to defend the infallibility of polls in general. This view is wrong. I know most of the serious professional pollsters in this country personally. I've listened to them at professional meetings, and I've spent innumerable hours discussing methods and issues with them. Two pro true professional pollsters know the limitations of their work more than anyone. In the course of this hour, I'll answer the question, can you believe the polls? There are some genuine and enduring problems with polling that have evolved particularly in the last 20 years or so that concern me greatly. I've been talking about these for all of those years, and my concerns have been manifest in the last two election cycles in particular. So I'm going to tell you a lot to help you understand, to understand whether to believe this year's polls, but my answers, unfortunately for you, are not going to be a simple yes or no answer. Life's more complicated than that. Where to begin? A short history of polling can help you understand some of the limitations on current day polling. Why? Because some of the biggest problems with 21st century polling can be traced to some of the earliest mistakes that were made almost 100 years ago. The first widely reported poll was exactly 100 years ago. In 1920, the Literary Digest, which was very widely read, 10 million subscribers, conducted every four years a clip-out survey starting in 1920. 
two and a half million people responded. The 1920 election was called right on the nose. Then 1924, 1928, 1930, 32 rather, all on the nose. People came to trust them. In 1936, their prediction was Alf Landon by a landslide. The actual result was President Franklin Roosevelt. You could hardly have missed by more. A while later, by the way, the Literary Digest goes out of business. I don't know whether it was due to this or not, but uh, it certainly hurt their reputation. But the interesting question is what went wrong? These Literary Digest respondents were, as the name might convey, upstale, educated people. In 1936, such people voted, until 1936, people like this voted like the rest of America. In other words, people of different economic backgrounds tended to vote the same as one another until 1936. What happens in 1936? The Depression is in full swing, and these votes voted Republican, while most of the rest of America voted for Roosevelt and the New Deal. In other words, their upscale bias wasn't correlated with voting until 1936, so it didn't matter. Remember this because we're going to hearken back to this historical example over and over because we're essentially making the same mistakes once again. In 1936, there was one person who got it right. He didn't interview two and a half million people. He had 50,000 versus the two and a half million the Literary Digest had. And you probably recognize his name. It's George Gallup. Now, how could a poll with 50,000 respondents be better than one with two and a half million? The answer is self-selection. It is the cardinal sin of polling, the worst possible mistake that you can ever make. Every one of those two and a half million respondents to the Literary Digest poll chose to be in the survey, and they tended to be upscale. After all, who reads literary magazines? By 1936, upscale votes voted differently from their less affluent peers. They no longer were representative of the general electorate. They weren't representative before 1936 either. It just didn't matter. But that, by the way, is the fallacy of basing your uh, comfort on somebody's track record of history. If they are using a fundamentally unsound method and it just happens to work for a while, there's no guarantee that it will continue to work forever. By the way, we now know that the 50,000 sample that George Gallup used was overkill. 1,000 or 1,500 is perfectly good for most of most purposes. It's the quality of the sample. It's much more important than the quantity once you reach several hundred respondents or more. Now, what did George Gallup do differently? Gallup used something called quota sampling. He gave interviewers quotas to fill in a range of categories of people, urban, rural, by race, by gender, by income, by education, by region of the country, etc. Quota sampling worked in 1936, in 1940, in 1944. All very good. Then 1948 comes. Remember the headline? Well, you may not remember it from your own memory, but you may have seen it in a history book, the headline, Dewey Beats Truman. 
that point, we will break and pick this up after a brief commercial break when we return in the think tank. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We've gone through the history of polling here to help explain where polling is right now and whether you can trust the polls today. We left off at the break in 1948 and the headline, Dewey Beats Truman. Quota sampling was used by George Gallup that year and other pollsters as well. It was way, way better than self-selection, but it too had a flaw. In quota sampling, interviewers, for example, had to find so many white, rural, high school-educated males to fill a quota, but they were left to their own devices to figure out how to find them. So they'll get their white, rural, high school-educated males, but will the people they get be typical of of this group? Too much judgment is in this process, and that's the fatal weakness of quota sampling. Way, way better than if you uh, allow people to self-select, but still fatal. They also, by the way, uh, stopped polling in September, figuring everybody's already made up their mind. Truman may have surged throughout the fall. But in 1948, Gallup missed, but somebody else got it right. Top-notch scholars doing economic surveys at the University of Michigan polling throughout the, uh, the year of 1948, tacked on a few political questions on the end of their economic survey, and the University of Michigan nailed it. And question is, what did they do differently? They used something called probability sampling, which remains the standard until today. What is probability sampling? Take the interviewer's judgment out of the process, select people in a way that everybody in the entire country has an equal chance of being selected as a respondent. How to do that would take hours to explain and years to learn how to do it, but it is doable. Like most things, it involves both expertise and effort. After the 1948 election debacle, the Social Science Research Council issued a blue-ribbon report. Their conclusion... Quota sampling is flawed. Probability sampling is the gold standard. Unlike all previous methods, probability sampling has the laws of mathematics behind it. Other methods up to this point were only experiential. In other words, they seem to work. They worked the last few times, so let's use them. Well, that works until it doesn't. This is now a mathematically derived method, and the laws of mathematics are immutable. So 1952 through the 1960s, all good pollsters were using probability sampling. Back then, by the way, surveys were door-to-door. Why? Many people didn't have phones. The rich did. Many others did not. One famous textbook even warned, quote, never interview by telephone on a list of do's and don'ts. In the mid to late 1960s, phone subscribership becomes nearly universal. Before that, only the rich had phones. How'd they do it? They did it through an ingenious subsidy method. If you're old enough to remember, a long-distance call, coast-to-coast, of three minutes, cost $10. That's $89 in today's dollars. Where did that money go? That money went to subsidize basic phone service, which got very cheap 
And all of a sudden, every household has a phone. That was a public policy goal. This was back in the Ma Bell AT&T days, a monopoly. A monopoly can be regulated. They said, make your long distance expensive and use that to give everybody a cheap phone. So with universal phone subscribership, survey research moves to the phone. And this is the golden age of Poland, the 70s and 80s. With near-universal phone ownership, you no longer have to train interviewers, send them out, and hope they follow your instructions. You can monitor and supervise them in a centralized phone room. You've got quality control. We got, believe it or not, response rates of 80-plus percent. If you work at it, really, maybe even 90 percent, really, at least in the early part of that period. Unlisted phones, no problem. Random digit dialing. No phone number secret. They all consist of digits between zero and nine, and we knew the geography of the first three digits, the prefixes. Later on, cell co- uh, phones come into play. More, impo- more importantly, cell-only households, that's an issue, but a fixable one. Include cell phones in the samples. It adds cost and complexity, but it's solvable. Over time, an incre- incremental increase in non-response is lurking out there, but it's still manageable during this period, but not forever. So that's where we are. Only The only uh, very uh, real threats start to emerge of some really cheap but lousy alternatives. Robocalls, some may remember, use recorded voices and machines to make calls. They're super cheap since you don't have to hire interviewers. But those get response rates in the neighborhood of 1%. You hang up on a robocall. It starts to smell like the literary digest all over again. We got a volunteer sample of the 1% who choose to participate. Imagine, however, the pollster's problem. A corporate client or a news organization wants a survey. We can do a really high-quality live interviewer sample. It can include cell phones if you want. Uh, We call back those who don't initially respond in order to get a high response rate. We can do this for you at a cost, maybe $50,000, and get you results in four to six weeks. And some guy with a robocall machine says, I can do it overnight and do it for 1000 bucks." Tempting? (laughs) You bet. Treacherous. Lots of polls were done this way. Cheap and quick is always compelling. But that's like the 1%. The 1% that you get, that again is like the literary digest poll, fast, cheap, and lousy. So these polls start to appear all over the landscape, often alongside legitimate and expensive polls with live interviewers. So move on to the early 2000s. Lots of robo polls, junk polls. Around this time, one of the things that happened that made life more difficult for robocallers, people are getting furious about junk calls. So the Federal Trade Commission outlaws auto-dialing cell phones. That includes all robocalls. Robocalls are cheap because you don't have to hire interviewers and you don't need live interviewers to call, and you do need now live interviewers to call cell phones. So you still see some robocall being used by low-end researchers because they're cheap, they call the few remaining landlines, maybe. Some ignore cell phones, cell phones entirely, but they supplement them with manually called cell phones. Auto dialing of cell phones with live interviewers is fast, efficient, accurate, and if you auto dial it now, illegal. So you can't do that. 
Calling cell phones with live interviewers are more expensive. Live interviewers can call cell phones, but they have to do it manually. So costs go up. Costs end up being a compelling part of this. Other junk polls came a bit later, uh, but it's worth mentioning them now because the problem is identical. The common thread? They all rely on volunteer respondents, just like the Literary Digest. Remember, 800 number, call in, call in this number if you want to give your opinion. Call this 800 number. And after that came Internet volunteer polls. Common thread, people are volunteering to be respondents rather than being selected randomly. There's, by the way, the problem is not the 800 number. It's not the Internet. It's the fact that you're using volunteer interviewers. And the problem is that respondents select themselves, again, exactly like the Literary Digest mistake of the early 20th century. Same shortcoming, same result. And we will pick this up when we return a moment in the think tank. By the way, if you want to reach me, the uh, best method is a website, mikeoneal.org. You can use that as a vehicle to reach me by... Uh, social media, email, or any other way. And we'll return and talk about the post-2000 era and what has happened in the recent years when we return for a third and final segment on the subject of polling in the Think Tank in just a moment. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're discussing the broad question of can you trust the polls and using a history of polling as a vehicle to explain that. We're moved up now into the post-2000 era. There's lots and lots of polls out there. More polls, more pollsters, some good, some not very good. 2008, there's a clever young fella, an economist, not a pollster. He observed that there's a lot of polls out there. In other words, a lot of good data. He starts compiling all of these into an economic model. He looks at things like who did the poll, when was it done, what region did you poll in, and he starts publishing his tallies. He develops a cult following of sorts, and I was among those who followed his work carefully. His predictions, in 2008, he got 49 states right. He missed only the interesting state of Indiana, about which I've always had a theory. Indiana was a Republican state that went for Obama. And he predicted it Republican. I think what happened is they were overstaffed in Chicago, his home base. And Illinois was a safe bet. And they sent hordes of people into Gary, Indiana and other places in Indiana and overwhelmed the local establishment. But that's just a guess. In 2012, it was even more impressive. He got 50 out of 50 right. Who was he? Well, nobody heard of him in 2008, but everybody now knows Nate Silver. Several other people jump on the bandwagon, by the way, and do similar modeling, all with the same level of success. At this point, polling looks infallible, or at least well-constructed averages of polls. And many put, people start to put way too much faith in polls. They impute a level of accuracy that they never had. This sets up polls for a fall when they don't deliver perfection. An interesting contrast to the period of 1970 to 2000, when polls probably should have been given more credit than they actually were. So what do I think happened in 2008 and 2012? First, 
they had a lot of data. For the first time, there's a lot of polls out there. Secondly, the modeling that he used was very good, made a lot of sense, and the uh, averages were uncannily predictive of the actual result. Included in these were several states with razor-thin margins that nobody claimed, including Nate Silver, were absolutely predictable. And I think in several of these, they just plain got lucky. When the predicted, and I use that in quotes, margin is less than 1%, no pollster can ever legitimately claim they, quote, predicted a victory. They can say candidate X appears to be ahead. Maybe they have a better than 50-50 chance of winning. But predict, as in giving you a statement with any level of certainty, nope. Lurking in the background, diminished response rates. Response rates were sky high in 1970 if you were professional and persistent. But take that sky high number and subtract 1% or 2% every year for the last 50 years. Do the math and you see where we end up. Based on this response rate issue for the last 20 years, I've been predicting that in politics, polling projections will eventually go wrong. And we just don't know exactly when. By the way, I wrote that sentence. I plucked it out of an old document. I wrote it 20 years ago. So this is not ex post facto. And in 2016 and 2020, it kind of represented the chickens coming home to roost. We were headed for a disaster. We just didn't know when. And in some respects, it was 2016. Though interesting, in many respects, the 2020 misses were even worse but uh, nobody noticed it because the end total result got got uh, done correctly. So what happened in 2016? Well, again, 40 to 50 year trend, increased refusal to participate. This is not a this year problem. The underlying mathematical basis of polling, which is based on a probability sample and most people responding to the polls, that has slowly eroded over decades. In the 70s and 80s, we could get 80% of respondents to participate. Again, if we were professional and persistent, take 1% or 2% a year off of that, and we're now in single digits. For years, and again, think back to the Literary Digest, this non-response was not correlated with much of anything, so we were lucky. It didn't impact the estimates very much. Again, think back to the Literary Digest. They're using a flawed method, but they're still right in 1920, 24, 28, and 32. Well, 2016 was a lot like uh, 1936, but something had happened in 2016. As best I can determine, around 2016, non-response seems to have become correlated with trust. And by the way, I mean not only trust in pollsters, but trust in journalists, trust in government, trust in institutions, things like was an election run fairly and cleanly, all of these things got correlated with the propensity to be willing to respond to a poll. So how does that impact your estimates? Trump voters score low on trust in institutions. And so as a result, they may be more likely not to respond to polls. So polls might underestimate them. On the other hand, there's another factor that can push things in the other direction. 
they don't trust mailed-in ballots either. So this allows Democrats to bank votes with early voting. And the reason this works, if mostly Republicans vote on election day, some of them intend who intend to vote may not getting around get around to vote because put simply stuff happens so a hundred percent of the early voters vote why do you know that because they already have that's what people who collect ballots and, and encourage people to send in early ballots that's what's all about it's not about persuading you who to vote for it's about getting you to be sure that you vote so you contrast that with the vote who those who vote on election day something less than 100% of people who on the election morning intend to vote something less than 100% of those people will why stuff happens it rains you have a personal emergency you forget any number of things and so you've got two influences that could push the numbers in different directions maybe they'll cancel one another out maybe not of course, one influence might be stronger than the other. If we could quantify these in advance, we could adjust. For example, the business of not responding to polls, maybe we add, say, 3% to the Republican number, right? But is 3% the right number? Maybe it should be 5%. Maybe it should only be 1%. We don't know. And on the other side, the Democrats banking votes, because polls measure intent, not actual voting, the impact of Democrats banking votes might push things in the other direction. Now, it's wishful thinking to expect that those two things are going to cancel. We know that they go in opposite directions, but they may not exactly cancel one another. In this area, I'd like to point out something else that uh, is widely misperceived, and that has to do with polling error and margin of error. Margin of error is the part of survey sampling that involves extrapolating from a sample that you do interview to a population you're interested in. The sample is those people you interview. The population, in the case of, of, of election work, is likely voters. And if you don't interview every likely voter in the world, you have a statistical margin of error that comes about as a result of the volatility of who you happen to select random probability. You're never going to get it exact. Most of the time, you're going to get close. And there are other potential polling errors. These include poorly worded questions, respondents refusing to talk to you, non-response I've been talking about over and over, maybe respondents lying to bolsters about their true figures. Only the first of these, the extrapolation from the sample to a population, is captured in margin of error. That is huge and not widely understood. The other potential sources of error are not quantifiable and can't be reported. My advice, by the way, if you got at least 500 or so respondents, ignore the margin of error figures completely. All they're going to do is mislead you. You got 500 plus. You're, you're in a reasonable neighborhood for statistical sampling. The other problems are potentially larger. By the way, the last item on my list, lying to pollster, has never in a there has never been an instance where that has been proven to be a factor in a political survey. It's widely speculated, but totally unproven. The issue, however, of some people respond and other people don't respond, that is a completely vexing problem. So 
two different things there. So what should consumers of polls do? Recognize they're not as accurate as they were 20 years ago. They can still have value, but a 5% lead is not something anymore that you can take to the bank, no matter what somebody reports the margin of error to be. Are polls still useful? Absolutely. Few users outside of election prediction require a perfect level of accuracy. If I tell you that 60% of consumers think that a given change will improve your product, does it really matter to you if the true number is 52%? No, either indicates it's a positive thing. If 80% of uh, citizens oppose a new uh, freeway and the truth is really 70%, it's still an unpopular idea and it's useful to know. And for politicians, the horse race question is the least useful thing in a strategic poll. Run like you're 5% behind is always good advice. But you can learn how the public feels about issues, about your opponent, and many other things that are strategically useful. A good poll is like a map. You can find your way home better with one than without one. So that's the bottom line. Are the polls as accurate as they once were? I think the evidence is not. Are they still useful for a wide number of purposes? And by the way, predicting horse race elections is probably the least important of these. But but it's a a completely, um, it's the sort of thing that people gravitate to. They're fascinated by. They want to know in advance who's going to win. That's probably the area where the... uh, Fall off in accuracy is most impactful, in part because in the 2008 and 2012 era, our expectations got ratcheted up unrealistically. Polls are useful, but they're not the be-all and the end-all. Count the votes. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. As promised, a little something different in our final segment. Uh, Hall of Fame broadcaster Jim Cross, uh, recent inductee. Uh, congratulations, buddy. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, you've been around here for about as long, in the newsroom, about as long as anybody. Uh, uh, more than 23 years now. 23 years, yeah. Uh, you've seen a lot of changes, I, I suspect, in the way political campaigns are run and yeah. uh, your interaction with candidates. I wonder if you could just kind of ruminate on that a little bit. Well, it seems like you used to have one or two races where the candidates generally just disliked each other. And, and there was a lot of, you know, nasty words going back and forth with the candidates. Now it almost seems like it's not every race, but it seems like it's almost every race. The rhetoric is not divisive or, or bad it, it it carries a lot of more venom now it seems like the candidates are i don't know more vicious out of lack of better terms on some cases so that was a big difference you know i'm thinking about that and i'm thinking uh, haven't done this as a reporter but certainly an observer of this for all of that period and uh I think it was Donald Trump that broke the the bank on that one, and and I can I can be specific on several things. Uh, our own John McCain was one. I mean, he had several things before that when he attacked a handicapped person, and 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 if you you know take this guy out, beat the crap out of him, you know take him out of here, blah blah blah. But the one that was a t- total shock on was when he took on McCain. And I said, well, this is the end of his campaign. He, you do not mess with a war hero in yeah. the Republican Party. 
and it didn't happen. And that seemed to me to show that there's no limit to what you can do, and it might even work. Yeah, I mean, the the exchanges that he had with McCain, and I remember the last time I ever interviewed McCain was in November of 2016, because he was running for re-election, too. Mm -hmm. I was the only one that showed up. It was very late in the campaign cycle, and I was the only one that showed up. If I remember, I was in an industrial park in North Phoenix, and it was a campaign event at a manufacturing place. And I went over to McCain, and he goes, you the only one here? And I said, yeah, I'm by myself. And he goes, what do you want to talk about? And I go, let's talk about Trump versus Clinton, the race. He didn't want to talk about it. But he didn't say anything nasty about it either. Um, as bad as McCain and him were at odds, McCain wouldn't tear into him at all. So at least, you know, during those, those interviews. You know, by and large now, more and more, the age of civility in politics is gone. I mean, it's always been nasty. I mean, you look back at what Nixon and Kennedy back in the what sixty. You look at uh, Bush and Gore and and uh, McCain and Obama. Not so much. Um, Trump Clinton was very bitter race. Uh, Trump Biden has changed. Mm -hmm. You know the uh, you thought you mentioned Kennedy Nixon. You know, if you talk about right now, we're having charges of conspiracy and stolen election, absent any information to back it up whatsoever. Well, there was <laughs> in 1960. There were some suspicious things in uh, in uh, uh, Texas and Illinois. Yeah. Uh, that Nixon could have raised and chose not to, though. Though, of course, I, I remember an interesting uh, 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 interview with um, Pat Buchanan. It was his aide, subsequently ran for president many years ago. And somebody asked him, well, why didn't you, uh, you know, contest the fact that they stole Texas and Illinois? He said, because we stole Kentucky. <laughs> well, at least he was honest. <laughs> so, I interviewed him once, too, about uh, 1996 when he was he was running. Mm -hmm. And I will remember this, a smart guy, and one of the people you do not want to ask a not well-thought-out question to, because his, the way he would come back, if you weren't smart about asking that question, he'd let, he'd let you know it. It's, it's he'd almost let like, you know that he knew that it wasn't a very good question. It was it was a learning experience. You mm -hmm. you kind of, it as nasty as it was, mm -hmm. you learned, okay, don't do that again. It wasn't so much the question, maybe it was the way it was asked, I mean, or something like that, but yeah, he'd... He, he let me know about it. So You know, he may have been a precursor to Trump in some ways, some years before. Um, mm. You know, a, a renegade in the Republican Party, the conservative party, basically saying the party's not conservative, not pure enough. Yeah, I could see that, Buchanan. But the 90s, for people that don't remember it, you had Ross Perot, 92. Was a, was a, let's, let's fill it in on who that was, because some of our folks are, you know, he was, he was a gadfly uh, Republican boy. entrepreneur from Texas. And, he, and people, his supporters were very devoted, and he had a lot of support in that. And initially, uh, his main, uh, ar the main argument, his appeal was he wasn't Bush and he wasn't Clinton. Yeah. And there wasn't anything to fill in other than that I'm not one of those guys. Right. You had Bush Sr., Mm -hmm. who he's hated for years right coming off a, a recession mm -hmm. you had the new guy bill clinton from arkansas uh you had perot in the mix then you mm -hmm. turn the clock forward to 1996 you had bob dole you had clinton you had buchanan in the mix for a while uh steve forbes was in mm -hmm. the race for a while the flat tax so the 90s were 
interesting. The two thousands have certainly been uh, interesting. One little interesting thing with Perot, he was he it was a meteor that shot out of nowhere. Yeah, and uh, my company happened to do a poll in Arizona at that just critical instance where he was at the apex. He was very briefly in first place, and our poll captured oh, yeah. that. A lot and, of people think he cost Bush that election against Clinton. Oh, I don't think there's any question no. about it, and that he that's what he wanted. Because yeah. while you might think that his politics more logically aligned with the Republicans, it was personal, and he had hated yeah. the Bushes for years. Another, another story about, I interviewed Perot in 92, and I asked him two questions. Two. He went 22 minutes. After the first one, I think about 11, 12 minutes in, I tried to go in to get my next question in. And he fired back with, who's doing the interview here? And you know how they had that voice. <laughs> yeah. And he goes. The Texas twang. Yeah. And I, he, and I just said, it's your show. <laughs> and he went for another 11 or 12 minutes. So it was it was an interesting character. And the charts. The charts were also charts big. He, had char- he had brought yeah. charts with him and talked from the charts. He had personality. I mean, he he. He's a memorable figure for a guy that did not win the White House or, you know, like go to the Senate or something else. I mean, he's, he was a character. Well, got, got, they got a little bit of screwy business at the end where he drops out with a very yeah. odd story about somebody's trying to, inter- remember, interfere with his daughter's wedding. Or yes. something. It was some real screwy thing. He gets out, and then a week or two later, he gets back in, but kind of the fizzle's gone, and now he's down, yeah. he's down at 20% or something. And he's really only that I can remember, the only third-party candidate that was in a presidential run, at least for as long as he was, that really had some traction for a while. Well, George I mean, Wallace. George Wallace. We seem to get him every 20 years, actually. Yeah. You, know? you didn't have He didn't ever have the feeling Perot would be able to overtake Clinton or Bush, but he kept it interesting. I, and he was... Yeah, I think he had potential. You know, oh, yeah. had he had he not gotten out, I think it's anybody's guess. As as I say, in Arizona, we captured that one moment. It was it was incredible. We happened to do the poll just at the right moment. And he was and, an incredibly sharp business person. Yeah, yeah, so. it was that he had that he had that argument going for him. Yep, and. Uh, you know that was uh, that was an argument. I'm going to run the. You know, it's, it's the old refrain. I'm going to run government like a business. Well, yep. many thanks, sure. uh, Jim Cross. Uh, congratulations again thanks on your stature. Again. Should I kiss your ring here? Uh, no, you're good. You, what a <laughs> uh, yeah, well deserved and uh, congratulations, Arizona Hall of Famer, uh, Arizona Broadcasters Hall of Famer Jim Cross. We'll see you next week in the think tank.